coming up on Economics Explored. And that's why the COP26 was a great disappointment because of the lack of action that they perceived that needed to happen to accelerate action on that 1.5 degree target because, you know, we're already at 1.1 degrees and the, and the fact of the matter is is that, you know, like, you know, we've only got a very small window to act to, to reduce emissions or stop emissions growth and then reduce them. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 117 on COP26. Was it a success or failure? The Global Climate Change Summit in Glasgow clearly disappointed many people. For instance, you may recall that UK MP Alok Sharma, the president of COP26, said he was deeply sorry for a last-minute change to the agreement reached at the summit. Under that change, coal-fired power would only be phased down rather than phased out. To chat about COP26, I've invited Scott Hook onto the program. Scott is a fellow Brisbane-based economist and an economist who has attended several of these COP summits in the past, including in countries such as South Africa and Poland. Scott has over 25 years of experience in policy, economic, environmental and financial analysis, and in the development of Pacific regional, national and local government policy. He has a PhD from the University of Queensland. Please check out the show notes for links to materials mentioned in this episode and for any clarifications. In the show notes, I'll also spell out the various abbreviations that turn up in this conversation, such as COP for Conference of the Parties, UNFCCC for the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and the IPCC for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. You can find the show notes via your podcasting app or at our website, economicsexplored.com. Please consider getting on our email list via the website as you'll be notified of new episodes and any new articles or videos that we post. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions relating to this episode or the previous episodes, then please either record them in a message via SpeakPipe, link in the show notes or email them to me via contact at economicsexplored.com. Righto, now for my conversation with Scott Hook on COP26. Thanks to my audio engineer Josh Crotz for his assistance in producing this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Scott Hook, welcome to the program. Thanks, Gene. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure, Scott. Keen to chat with you today about the COP26 meeting on climate change that we had in Glasgow uh, a few weeks ago. So we're recording this in late November 2021. And uh, Scott, to, before we begin, would you be able to tell us a bit about yourself, please, your experience as an economist? I've found that that's something people are interested in. One of my most popular episodes so far has been what uh, econom- about what economists do. So uh, I've been, I was a little bit surprised by that, uh, but it, I guess it suggests people are interested in in the wide variety of work that people do. So uh, economists do. So could you please uh, give us some flavour of your experience? Thanks, Gene. Thanks so much, and thanks for the opportunity to be able to speak with you today. Yeah, look, it's it's a question which my my own family and and probably every other family who has an economist in the family wants to understand what they do. My, my children only understand that I do lots of meetings and everything like that, but that's just not the the gist. My background is that I. Um, I developed an interest in economics when I was in high school and, and followed that through with regard to doing my Bachelor of Economics at, at university. And then um, I, I suppose the, the issue why I was interested in economics was the way in which things work, the way in which, for example, people interacted uh, in society and the way in which, for example, wealth and poverty and the dynamics of, of change happened within the society. And economics appeared to be sort of like that sort of subject that sort of looked at people, looked at their underlying incentives and sanctions and, and how they acted and worked. And so I, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to get a job um, as a graduate at the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Um, and then from the ABS, I, I worked on, uh, I then got a job working at the Commonwealth Treasury. Mm. And so I worked in the in the international economy division of the Commonwealth Treasury, 
And then after that, I, I did a series of other sort of appointments within the federal government because I had a great interest in labour economics in general. So I worked in what was used to be the Department of Industrial Relations. And then later on, with regard to um, in later years, I then moved up to Queensland and, and worked for Queensland Treasury. And uh, at, at Queensland Treasury, I worked there for about uh, about six years and worked on a, on a range of sort of like both uh, domestic, uh, sorry, local state matters, but also, uh, you know, like um, internet, uh, global matters such as climate change. And that was where I had my first exposure with regard to climate and uh, climate change and, and emissions trading and related issues like that. So as, as an economist, you know, it, it provides a sort of great interest in terms of the fact is that the economic impacts of climate change uh, can can impact across quite a wide range of areas, not just economically in terms of directly impacts on infrastructure and, and on business operations, but also with regard to way in society's uh, progress run as well and everything like that. So very interesting sort of area and, and a very interested sort of that in my career in economics as it progressed forward. Okay. And you've also done some work in the Pacific, is that right? Yes, yes. So, so after um, having a small uh, stint working as a lecturer at an Australian university that was set up in Fiji at the time, I came back to Australia with an interest in, in the Pacific. And, and so I, st- I wrote a few articles and, and then sort of uh, thought that um, I'd like a change in my sort of direction of my career and move into development economics. And so then I undertook a, a PhD at the University of Queensland. And so I undertook that, uh, silly enough, part-time at first, um, and then took um, took 2008, 2009 off to complete the PhD going forward. And then in 2010, I was able to obtain a position at a regional organisation called the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat as the Economic Infrastructure Advisor. And so I worked there at the Forum Secretariat for nine years as the Economic Infrastructure Advisor and then became what was known as a team leader resilience. So the areas dealing with climate change, uh, disaster risk, especially issues related to financing, but also involvement in the conference of the party meetings, as known as the COP, and, uh, and a variety of issues related to public financial management improvements and measuring uh, amount of climate finance coming to the Pacific region. Mm. So is climate change, uh, it's a real threat for some of these Pacific islands, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, the, the, uh, the, for, for the issue with regard to it is that um, – Pacific Island countries are, are incredibly different in, in their geographical uh, uh, makeup and, and sort of shape. And so there's a, quite a few countries such as Kiribati, uh, Tuvalu, Republic of the Marshall Islands that are, are low-lying atoll states. And, and so as a low-lying atoll state, um, it only requires a small rise in sea levels to result in the, those countries basically disappearing. And so there's a – but at the same time – most Pacific Island populations live on the coast or nearby the coastal areas. So even, for example, like those what we call as higher sort of countries such as Fiji, uh, Papua New Guinea, uh, Cook Islands, that have uh, Samoa, that have sort of like high inland areas, most of the population still lives on the coast. So that, again, mm. as sea levels rise, and then this is what's been happening, for example, is that many communities in the Pacific are already being moved because of climate change. The impacts with regard to rising sea levels and inundation affecting their water table, affecting their ability to be able to, you know, like, um, you know, that at high tide they're unable to, to live in their places means they've had to move and everything like that. And that imposes a great cost and impact on those communities and those countries. And that's sort of part of the issue of what's called loss and damage, but we'll probably get onto more of those issues later on, everything like that. But yeah, climate change is, is a real threat to Pacific Island, not just their their. Uh, countries, but the livelihoods and and the and the actual existence of those countries themselves. Right. Okay. So there is evidence, or that you have seen those impacts already from sea level rise in those countries. Absolutely. So, okay. so it's it's not only it's not only just um just with regard to um, people observations and historical sort of a, but also the fact is that the IPCC as it, as it continues sort of like to improve the quality of its analysis, it's identifying the fact is that you know like the increasing. Uh, chance of, of, you know, like major cyclones such as the Pacific has been hit by two Category 5 cyclones in the last five years that have been, that were the strongest on, on record, one of them was the strongest on record ever. So, so that really means the fact is that the impacts of climate change are apparent, are happening and, and will accelerate going forward. And, it's, it's, and that's why the COP26 was a great disappointment because of the lack of action that they perceived that needed to happen to accelerate action on that 1.5 degree target because, you know, we're already at 1.1 degrees and the, and the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, like, you know, we've only got a very small window to act to, to reduce emissions or stop emissions growth and then reduce them. Right. Okay. So just on COP26, I might read out uh, what Martin Wolf in the Financial Times said about it. So 
Martin Wolf uh, has written a piece, Dancing on the Edge of Climate Disaster. Despite signs of hope, scepticism is fully justified when it comes to the COP26 announcements. How are we to, to assess the outcomes of COP26 in Glasgow? It would be reasonable to, to conclude that it was both triumph and disaster. Triumph in that some notable steps forward have been taken and disaster in that they fall far short of what is needed. It remains very doubtful whether our divided world can muster the will to tackle this challenge in the time left before the damage becomes unmanageable. Okay, so uh, based on what you were saying before, Scott, it, it sounds like you might be uh, in agreement with what Martin Wolf is saying there. Do you have any thoughts on what he was saying there? Yeah, I, I think just to quickly, I'll, I'll just, um, the, the COP process itself um, is like meeting several meetings within meetings. Yeah. And so, so um, the, the core of it is the Conference of the Parties, which is, uh, you know, all 194-odd countries that have, have signed the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is the core agreement that, that basically recognises that, that we have to act on climate change. But the COP meeting itself also attracts a wide variety of other actors and, and participants, civil society and everything like that. So there's a lot of actions and activities going around it. So these days now, I mean, like, and, and with this COP26, we also had a, a, a pre like a high-level leaders event as well and everything like that. And so what, what we're finding increasingly now with the COP meetings is that the, the COP itself per se um, is only one part of a, a wider picture and sort of a lot of countries and, and non-state actors are making announcements outside of the COP because they're, they're wanting to be able to, I guess, you know, uh, you know, reflect on action and not be sort of, I guess, limited by the commitments under the COP process itself and everything like that. So that it's, it's, um, so when you sort of start to look at these sort of like, you know, like, um, you know, commitments in the COP itself, yes, I mean, like, you know, at least it maintains the fact is that we have to work harder at COP27 in Egypt going forward. But if, for example, you look at agreements related to methane that were outside the COP, or commitments by India to go to net zero by 2070, or the forests agreement to to make sure that the there's an ongoing reduction in deforestation. The fact is that you know if you bring those all together, and that's what some of the analysis is doing, is the fact is that on the on the most optimistic scenarios at the moment, we, we're possibly heading towards a below two degrees increase going forward and everything like that. So it's still work to do, but. You can also look on the fact is that there are some upsides with regard to what comes out of these these meetings going forward and everything like that. But yeah, it's very complicated. And when you look at the the, the COP process itself, it's incredibly glacial in the way in which it advances, and very uh, that means that it's incredibly slow because the whole process is predicated on the basis that everyone has to agree. So it's not all agreed until it's all agreed, which means that all the participants have to be able to be happy with that outcome which means that you're always relying upon the the laggard, the, the last of the pack, to actually be happy with what's happening going forward and everything like that. It's not based on the leaders, it's based on those coming through and everything like that. And that means the fact is that we've got to focus on those countries such as the Saudi Arabias, the Russias, who are, are the laggards of the pack going f- at the moment, you know. Right, okay. So is this uh, is this a sensible way to go about it? Because it seems to me that, there are only a handful of major economies that are consequential, or maybe that maybe it's more than a handful. I mean, there's a small group of economies that are the main contributors to yeah. greenhouse gas emissions. So why have we set up this this I don't know if uh, Byzantine or this <laughs> uh, really complicated process is the right it, yeah. Why have we done this? No, absolutely no. You're totally right, and it, it is it is a very slow process. And you have to go back to the convention, and the, and the UNFCCC agreement said that Annex One countries, developed countries, the OECD countries, plus those transition countries, including the, the Russia and its former states, were are the are the are the basically the the prime you know, movers with regard to the the causing of climate change. And so, so with regard to actions under both the UNFCCC and also the Kyoto Protocol, actions relied upon them only to reduce those emissions going forward. The, the major breakthrough was the Paris Agreement in 2015, which included all parties to the convention, including China, India, Indonesia, and they then had to make commitments under what's known as the Nationally Determined Contributions to make commitments about reducing their emissions over time. Acknowledging the fact is that these economies are still having, you know, like 
you know, still have growth plans, want to increase the wealth of their population, everything like that. So this is the main thing with regard to is that, as you said correctly, is that the perception has been is that it has fall, often only rested on a small group, a smaller group of countries. But at the same time, if you take the United States, you take the European Union, you take Canada, you take Australia, they make up a, a large portion of global emissions anyway. Mm. And so their actions really have a substantial impact on reducing re- reducing CO two emissions, which is part of what the what the framework what the UNFCCC is about, from the COP is about, and everything like that. But you're right, the 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 incorporation of developing countries, particularly China, India, Indonesia, um, Saudi Arabia, um, you know Nigeria, into these uh, Brazil, into these negotiations, South Africa is really vital, and and that's part of the thing is that you know acknowledging this, and and that then comes to the issue of which I've been involved in extensively, which is with finance. And how developed countries then provide sufficient finance to transform those economies so that, you know, countries like South Africa, which is a large coal exporter, or Indonesia, India or China, who also large coal exporters, coal demander, start to go beyond coal, for example, as, as a critical part of their part, growth development path going forward. Okay. So with this finance, was there a pledge that there would be $100 billion US for uh, finance, but that hasn't come through is that right we haven't yeah, seen yeah. that so so um so um in paris in 2015 um developed countries uh, made this commitment for 100 billion dollars by 2020 but it was sufficiently written vaguely enough that it was 2020 or 2025 depending on which part of the paris agreement you looked at now now the thing is is that um we we were in 2021 and i think uh, at the most recent cop the oecd reported it was about 79 80 billion dollars and so again, it was still falling short. But but even that hundred billion dollars, even if they met their target, it still is insufficient compared to what is the needs in terms of both adaptation, which is reducing the impacts of climate change, and mitigation, which is you know moving from fossil fuels to renewable energies and improving energy efficiency, etc. Going forward as well. So we're we're talking you know as, as the World Bank, so we're talking here about trillions rather than billions. A hundred billion is is totally insufficient to go forward. But they still haven't met that target, and now they've recommitted to looking at it. At, uh, at Glasgow to see if we can we can double it um, in the next several years in the next three to four years going forward. But it, it, again, it's a, it's a constant issue with regard to the fact is that if you're going to seek to be able to transform economies through either you know like you need to be able to ensure that you exchange you provide technology, you be able to provide the necessary um, you know I guess what would be known as uh, as being able to allow just transition, particularly for those communities that are dependent on fossil fuels to go forward. And to be able to ensure that the fact is that, um, you know, like these populations still continue on the growth path going forward. Because as we know, China, uh, India, great, uh, great, you know, imp- cl- totally important for global supply hubs in terms of being a source of a source of manufactured uh, goods going forward as well and everything like that. So we need to be able to think about how that flows through supply chains going forward at the same time. Mm, yes. Uh, I want to chat a bit more about uh, this point. You mentioned adaptation and mitigation. So some of the measures need to be adapting to climate change. Some need to be mitigating the greenhouse gas emissions, so reducing those greenhouse gas emissions. Have you worked on examples of uh, adaptation projects or mitigation projects in the Pacific? Scott, are there any examples you could provide? Yeah, I mean, um, while I haven't... um I've worked on a series of uh, regional uh, policy uh, documents and, and programs um, to be able to to support aspects of these. So, so for example, um, you know, there's been various uh, European uh, Union funded, World Bank funded, ADB funded programs that I've I've participated in in the design and, and support of with regard to uh, providing work for uh, for energy transformation. And that would, and obviously the the lowest hanging fruit is with regard to issues related to energy efficiency. I mean that can just be very small measures such as changing your light bulbs to LEDs. It, it but then it moves up to, for example, improving the the thermal efficiency of of existing uh, fossil fuel generators, for example, and everything like that. Um, there's also with regard to issues, obviously, them in terms of improving the use of renewable energy. So, you know, worked in the variety of sort of like solar and, and wind related programs that, that supported these. Even issues related to waste and the treatment of waste, because if you think about waste, 
and as it as it degrades, it emits methane, and that that's a that's a major greenhouse gas, much more powerful in terms of its effects vis-a-vis CO two and everything like that. So even things such as you know like uh, venting and flaring of that methane, it becomes CO two, so it's much lesser impact. And then the other aspect you said is is adaptation, and so in the Pacific, often much of that involves things such as related to coastal and protection of coastal areas. So things such as you know seagrasses and mangroves. Um, you know, uh, protection with regard to those um, so that it, it protects the community, improves uh, food security, uh, and also promotes the uh, a certain limited amount of protection from tsunamis and, and, and other sort of like, uh, you know, like sea events that uh, might with, with um, surges from, from uh, cyclones, everything like that. So, yeah, there's, there's a variety of sort of like both adaptation and mitigation, but globally the, the balance of funding is, is greatly in front of, greatly in favour of mitigation because often if you have an energy project, it's much easier to sort of do the calculate the economics of the rates of return in terms of both a renewable energy or an energy efficiency program vis-a-vis an adaptation program going forward. So the, the, you know, three-quarters of global funding is, is for mitigation only about a quarter for adaptation. But for countries in the Pacific, for example, they're greatly dependent on, on those, those adaptation packages to protect their, their livelihoods and, and, and economies going forward. Right, okay. I'll have to um, put some links in regarding those type of packages. I just, yeah, just find it fascinating, uh, the, all the different types of uh, adaptation measures. And, and with, uh, with their energy needs, with the Pacific, is it the case that they're largely relying on diesel generators for power now? Is that right? Most countries are. I mean, yeah. that, and that's a historical legacy with regard to, I mean, just the way in which, for example, their energy systems were developed and rolled out. But but there's been substantial uh, changes, like, for example, Tokelau, which uh, which is a New Zealand dependency, it is is now is now totally uh, dependent on renewable energy. I mean, it has a backup diesel, right? But but it's tr- they've transformed the economy to be able to use one hundred percent renewables, and, and this is the thing: is that you know in the Pacific, you only require small amounts of of funding to be able to really radically transform. Um, these economies going forward. And they've got really ambitious uh, programs. Some of them, with regard to their, what, are, as what I mentioned previously, these nationally determined contributions outline a country's commitments going forward about how long it's going to take them to go to net zero and everything like that. And some countries have got very ambitious agendas over the coming years to actually transform their economies to basically move away completely away from uh, from fossil fuels. But yeah, so, so that means that on an in- energy intensity basis, Pacific Island countries are very high emitters on a per capita basis because obviously when you install like a, 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 a you know, two, four, 10 kilowatt uh, machine for a very small community it's 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 the the amount of sort of electricity generated per per hour and the, and the emissions is quite high but the opportunities to be able to use wind uh, energy for for most countries is quite good and solar is, is is phenomenal and everything like that but it's it's obviously with regard to you know and there's quite a lot of sort of work in terms of OTEC which is using uh, ocean currents to be able to um, generate electricity as an alternative as well and everything like that so there's there's new technologies emerging everything like that and the Pacific can transform itself. And there's a lot of object aims at the national level to actually do that. Okay, that's good stuff. Uh, Scott, I'd like to go back to this this COP26 process. You've been to some of these COP meetings, haven't you? And you've been, was it six meetings you've been to? Could you tell us a bit about that and the process and how it works? And um, we talked about how maybe... Well, there's this issue that you need everyone to agree. Um, do you have thoughts on pros and cons of the COP process? Uh, how we could do it better? If yeah, that, if you could sort of summarise that, please, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's a terrible process, but it's an inclusive process. And and I, I think the fact is that that when you have a a global problem, you require every country to to be on board and have ownership of of those outcomes. I mean, while, while, for example, um, you know, you know, you think that if, for example, uh, a group, a small group of countries, which are the largest emitters, um, do agreements amongst themselves to be able to to make these changes, um, that that might work, that can work, but at the same time, there's a vast there's a vast majority of people that need to be able to change the way they live as it is at the moment. 
and the way in which, for example, we've been using uh, fossil fuels and the ways in which, for example, our cities have developed, the ways in which we uh, pollute our oceans, the way in which, for example, we, we are affecting, adversely impacting the environment means the fact is that our, our livelihoods are unsustainable as, as they are at the moment. So the COP process came as as, an, as a sort of like as part of this sort of three tiered process that came from the this uh, global Rio summit um, back in uh, back more than twenty years ago now in, in Was Brazil. Was this in nineteen ninety two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Uh, the uh, sorry, the Rio Earth Summit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so and so three processes came from that, and one of them was the uh, the Convention on Global Biodiversity. Another one was the the, the uh, desertification uh, and uh, process, and one, the other one was the was the COP process with regard to well not COP the UNFCCC climate change convention processes. So each of them sort of had key roles going forward in terms of protecting our biodiversity. Another one was with regard to sort of protecting our landforms and and making sure the fact is that you know desertification wasn't increasing everything like that. And then finally the one which obviously I'm most familiar with is is the process dealing with climate change. We've also got other international processes as well, such as, for example, the Sendai process, which reflects on disaster risk management, and that's sort of got a very close relationship with climate change, but but a slight different as well. But, yeah, so, look, the COP process. Yeah, look, I mean, there's there's over 190 uh, countries that are a party to the convention, uh, and so uh, the COP meeting itself is actually several meetings all combined. So it's first of all is the one with regard to the, the UNFCCC, Another one was with regard to the um, the uh, the Kyoto Protocol, and the last one now is is the new one dealing with the Paris Agreement. And so there, there's there's three meetings with three overarching meetings within the one meeting, and then within that there's a series of of uh, technical meetings that occur under different subject matters. So the ones that I and I mean my first meeting was I attended was in in Durban. Uh, in South Africa, that was my first meeting. And, and so you sort of like when you go there, you just see thousands of people streaming around, running around from one meeting to the next. You have no idea about what they're all doing. You just you just sort of just see everybody running into plenary, then running back out to the various subject meetings and all that sort of stuff and coming back and all that sort of thing. And it's very disorienting and it's you get easily lost, you know. But I, I worked on uh, finance, so you sort of keep your sort of like your 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 uh, your vision to a specific topical area. But even then within finance, the, the last COP I attended was in uh, Warsaw, uh, not Warsaw, sorry, in um, uh, in Poland in in 2018, and um, and 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 basically, I mean, like there were 11 different subject areas under the uh, under the finance meetings in a whole variety of different areas. And I was, uh, I was part of the, uh, the delegation of the Solomon Islands. So uh, I was, uh, I've, benefit, I've benefited from, because what, what would happen is that I would join a, deleg- a Pacific Island delegation to provide that necessary assistance and support, not just for a country, but for the region. So I've also been part of delegations of Vanuatu, um, Palau, and, and also Niue as well. So very grateful for those countries and the support they gave. And so at, uh, at the COP, uh, at COP24, in, in Poland, um, what I did was that um, I led on what's known as long-term financing, which was this commitment to provide $100 billion by 2020. And, uh, and so what you would do is that you would then sort of provide sort of like specific text that would then be put together into advice to the COP chair for adoption into the overarching uh, COP document and everything like that. But it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, so it's, a, it's a series of sort of smaller meetings yeah, that provide yeah. text that are then absorbed into the larger meetings to pr- provide their finalised texts going forward. And that provides advice to, for example, the, uh, the Secretariat, the, the United Nations um, uh, Secretariat that, that provides support to the COP process, or it provides guidance to the Green Climate Fund or to the Global Environment Facility or the Adaptation Fund about how they might want to sort of shape those financing going forward and everything like that, and, and, and so the areas that should be focusing on the next 12 months. Okay, so this is financing for, is it for governments in emerging economies, for companies in emerging economies, so that they can invest in renewables? Is that what it's for? Yes, so it can be. So, so for example, we take the Green Climate Fund. So the Green Climate Fund is a is an ent- is basically an entity that, that serves serves the Paris Agreement and the and the and the UNF and the the wider COP agreement and everything like that. So what happens is that the the uh, Green Climate Fund has specific funding, um, I guess, envelopes 
that can support adaptation and mitigation, but also it has specific initiatives that can be provided through to countries, but also to companies as well and everything like that. And so the GCF can have a wide variety of financial products. It can provide grants, it can provide soft loans, it can provide loan guarantees to be able to support companies companies go uh, countries uh, companies and, and going forward to uh, fulfill their their um, climate change objectives and that's why a country's climate change commitments under its nationally determined contributions is really important because that's an official document which says that we commit to these things and for developing countries it's really important because then when they say to developed countries and to the world bank and adb and gcf they say well these are our objectives so you really need to be able to support us to be able to attain these objectives because countries have conditional and non-conditional commitments. The conditional ones are conditional often on finance, technology, and other sorts of support being provided going forward. And so that that's part of the whole process. So the finances is... is yeah, a key part. I mean, as economists, we know the fact is that, you know, the, the role of finance is really critically important to be able to support the ability of countries and companies to, to uh, make those changes uh, going forward. Right. So it sounds, based on what you were saying before, that the World Bank has estimated that trillions of dollars are needed. Is that right? Absolutely. The uh, the ADB did an estimate for the Pacific alone uh, back in, I think it was at 2014, 2015. And that was, uh, that was basically in like looking at a couple of hundred billion dollars a year for the Pacific alone. And, and that was just being able to reflect on, on its adaptation needs going forward. If you reflect on a country like Australia and the adaptation needs that they will have going forward, they're, they're substantially hundreds of billions of dollars in its own right. If you think about the fact is the impact of droughts, uh, impacts of bushfires, impacts of, mm. of inundation for coastal communities. I mean, the major thing in Australia, for example, will be is when the first coastal community has to move because of, of regular inundation caused by, you know, high tides and everything like that, you know? We, we see that when communities living by the water start losing, you know, houses start losing because, you know, there's, you know, cliffs start falling and all sort of stuff, people get very upset about it. But when you have a whole community move, it's going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars to be able to do that properly, you know? Right. And has this happened in the Pacific? In On Pacific Islands, some communities have had to move? Yes, yes, yes. In, uh, For example, in Fiji, there's there's already been, there's already been uh, I think, over 50 communities, I think more 60 communities that have been identified that have to be moved because of the ongoing impacts of rising sea levels and inundation for those communities. Because, you know, if you think about it, I mean, you know, if you're if you're relying upon your water supply and your water supply is now being adversely affected by seawater saltwater intrusion or if if you're unable to sort of basically live in your home because at high tide your house is your house is being inundated by water they have to move backwards and then the government has then construct new infrastructure new schools new roads uh, to be able to ensure that that communities are power supplies to be able to ensure that communities are going forward so yes I mean Fiji had um, has announced at cop 26 they they um, I think they announced a specific uh, funding initiative to support this issue of, of communities and helping them move as a consequence of the impacts of climate change. Okay, I'll check that out and put it in the put it in the show notes. Um, with this uh, this document that gets prepared or this statement that gets prepared at the end of each of these COP meetings, is that called a communique? Is that what they call it? Or? No, the, the, um, I mean basically what it, what it's called is is that it's it's sort of like you know like a, if the this one uh, the one from Glasgow is called the Glasgow Climate Pact. Right. Okay. And, and so, and so, what will happen is is that you know, like it's a, it's an outcome of the meeting of the of the conference of the parties, the Kyoto Protocol meeting of the Kyoto Protocol parties, and a meeting of the of the parties of the Paris to the Paris Agreement, and that's all put into one document. And, and that document then is is a globally agreed document to, as a charting the way forward to be able to say, well, this is our progress at this stage. This is the additional work we've committed ourselves to do. So that at the most recent terms in Glasgow, countries made a series of commitments to be able to come back next year to improve the ambition of their current sort of NDCs because at the moment they're woefully not meeting the, the needs to be able to accelerate action on reducing emissions. And so many countries will come back next year in Egypt 
to be able to say, well, these are our, our new indices. There was meant to be a process whereby basically countries would come back um, and have these sort of global stock takes every sort of, th- I think it was three, four years to be able to report and say, well, this is what we've done, everything like that. But now the fact is that because action is required now before 2030, because as I said before, is that global temperatures now appear to have increased on average by at least 1.1 degrees. So there needs to be an acceleration of actions now before 2020 to ensure that we maintain at least some commitment to be able to reach to, to ensure that we remain under 1.5 degrees going forward. Yeah, so accelerating of actions before 2030 you're talking about. Yes. And, the, on, and so countries are going to come back or they're going to go to Egypt next year and they will announce what their new NDC, so is it nationally determined contributions? Yeah, yeah. So they'll, they'll come up with updates. So, I mean, so the COP uh, agreement has a whole series of work programs and, and suggestions and requests for, for additional research and analysis to be done on a whole variety of different pieces of work, you know. So in terms of the finance, there's going to be additional advice in terms of how do we reach uh, the current $100 billion target and how do we double it and, and reach that target going forward, for example, in terms of issues related to a whole variety of things on agriculture and and uh, loss and damage. Um, I mean, th- there's this new um, – th- there's a proposed – there was a, the – in Santiago, well, in the meeting in Madrid, which was meant to be in Santiago, they, they agreed to the development of this loss and damage um, financing facility. Now, they've put that into operation, but now that requires work to be done in terms of how do we fund it? You know, how does countries access it? You know, what sort of funding uh, like mechanism will they use going forward and everything like that? So, so there's every meeting sort of highlights homework that needs to be done by the various sort of committees and groups and everything like that to, to progress forward so that at the next COP, They'll, they'll report back and say, well, this is what we've done. This is what we've found out. This is what we can do to implement this work going forward. So, yeah, it's a very slow process, but it's also a very sort of precise in terms of the fact is that they do a lot of work that feeds into creating the necessary uh, advice and evidence to help them make better decisions. Right. Wow. And this is why you need so many public servants involved <laughs> in the process. And uh, I remember in Australia we had – I don't know, I'm not sure what we call it now, but when I was in Treasury, we had an Australian greenhouse office and then that eventually became the Department of Climate Change. But I think the current Australian government abolished the Department of Climate Change, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you're right. I mean, um, I mean, I, I think human processes, unfortunately, are prone to uh, bureaucratisation and, yeah. and once you put it in the hands of, of um, I mean, that's and that's the frustration, I think, of the civil society so that, you know, uh, a lot of people outside of that process get easily frustrated because they say, well, you need to do the action now. And, and I mean, you understand that, but at the same time, you know, it, it's, it's a process whereby you really make sure that everybody needs to be, they can't say, oh, look, you know, you didn't look at that. And, you know, we need to keep on, you know, like, you know, like, I, I guess, you know, going back over and saying, is that right? Was that the right decision or sort of stuff? Because, you know, as you see, it's sort of like, it's easy to cast doubts and dispersion on, on the advice. And I mean, like, but you need to be able to make sure that you've, you've had, a, had a process to ensure that those views have been aired, considered and responded to and everything like that. So that, you know, like, even though, for example, there are still people that still feel that climate change is not uh, happening it's still something which has been made up. You know, the vast majority with regard to scientific and, and public policy decisions now are based on the fact is that climate change is happening, climate change is real, and that we need to act sooner rather than later, you know? Mm. Yes. Um, I want to ask about these, these different uh, agreements that you've been talking about. So you talked about Paris Agreement. So there were parties to the Paris Agreement. But you also talked about the Kyoto Protocol. So this was something that dates back from over 20 years ago, doesn't it? Yeah. But is that that's still having some influence, is it? Can you explain what's going on there? Yeah. So, so, so I mean, part, part of the, the what was outlined by under the original agreement what was that, you know, countries were meant to be able to provide a, a pathway to go forward to be able to start to, you know, like slow the increase in emissions move towards a process of, of at least net zero and then start to reduce emissions over a period of time, everything like that. So what happened was that Kyoto Protocol was this first attempt um, to to make this happen and that was very early in the piece, mm. in, the, in the early 1990s. I think it was like COP3 where they met 
And, but Australia, for example, didn't accede to it till, till several years, quite a few years later and everything like that. Uh, and, and I remember at the time that Australia negotiated, you know, specific uh, exemptions, well, not exemptions, but specific clauses, such as, for example, issues related to land use change. So that, you know, when farmers in, in, in Queensland, for example, stopped clearing land, mm. Australia could claim that as a credit to, uh, to basically say, well, look, we've reduced our emissions because we're no longer cutting down as many forests as what we were and everything like that. Yeah. But, but yeah, so, so, so the thing was is that the, the Kyoto Protocol was the first attempt to be able to bring countries together, but it was limited only to those Annex 1, those developed countries, those OECD countries, who, who made commitments that were enforceable under the Kyoto Protocol. Oh, gotcha. Like that. Okay. Yeah. The, the the major the major process developing from there then was the fact is that you know they um you know they negotiated an extension of the Kyoto Protocol because it was supposed to sort of not end but it was you know, it was supposed to sort of like you know like meet its targets by by the end of the last decade and so there was an extension uh, negotiated to, to go forward with regard to the Kyoto Protocol but the Paris Agreement was was much more important because as I said um, every country has to be a part of this agreement. And under the Paris Agreement, every country is committed to it. Now, the, the the challenges under any any global agreement is that you know what do you what happens to those that don't fulfil their promises? So at the moment, it's just an outing process. So you know when you go and report on your emissions, you just say, well, you, you, we didn't meet it, you know, and 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 so you know, but there's no sanctions that can be taken against the nation or that sort of stuff. Yeah. Which is, which is totally understandable because I mean, the, the thing is, is that, you know, you, you're wanting to be able to work with countries, not work against them, not sort of stuff. But what we're seeing, for example, is that the U S and European union at this meeting negotiated a, a specific agreement about looking at steel and iron and looking at sort of ways to be able to start to, you know, basically tax the carbon in those, in those sectors going forward. And they'll have major impacts on major steel producers in China, for example, going for uh, as a result of that, this is a carbon border adjustment tax, is it? Or yeah, I think it's. I, I, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I only just saw. It. I didn't read right. the details specifically of it, but it's very interesting about the fact is that the Europeans and the US sort of had this discussion and, and made this proposal going forward and everything like that. And that will that will ha- they'll be interesting to look at that going forward because that will have implications on Australian iron ore exports going forward. If, for example, Chinese steel manufacturers start to face increasing prices as a consequence yeah. of, of sort of like these implied sort of carbon uh, taxes that, are, gonna, that could be placed upon those steel exports from China. Okay, okay. So I'd like to chat about just whether this whole process is, uh, whether it's going to achieve anything because you were saying that it was seen as a bit of a breakthrough, was it, that India came out and said that it will go was it net zero by 2070? Yeah, 2070. And was, China's was saying real? net zero by 2060. But we need to, well, the planet needs to act earlier than that, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, and we, we've still got coal-fired power plants being built in, in these countries. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, are there any grounds for optimism? I mean, my view is that we really need the US to show leadership on this. If, if anything's going to happen, you really need a US president to say, this is what we, we want to do. We, we have this urgent challenge and uh, this is what the US policy settings is and we want the rest of the world to do the same thing. This is what our carbon price is or something. And if the rest of the world doesn't do that, then we will use this mechanism to punish the rest of the world <laughs> or, or, or we will provide these incentives, right? I mean, it needs the leadership of maybe the US and the EU Possibly some agreement with China. Now that's that's difficult given the geopolitical tensions. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm just pessimistic about what we can achieve from this this process involving what is it 190 countries or whatever it is. I mean, yeah, a huge number of countries, countries. just unbelievable. Um, Scott, am I being too pessimistic about that? No, it's it's uh, it's it's true, and I mean, it, it is really important um, that certain certain countries lead um, this process uh, forward. I mean, uh, obviously, when um, when the previous president Donald Trump um, announced the um, withdrawal of the United States from the from the Paris Agreement, um, that that really placed in the question the, the whole global 
um, ability to be able to progress the the, the Paris Agreement. Um, obviously, um, you know the 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 U.S. coming back into the process, and earlier this year, um, President Biden making that commitment for the United States to reduce its its uh, emissions by over fifty percent by twenty fifty is really critically important. The, the, the major challenge is, is now is, is getting sort of like how does that look for the 2030 target? Even though there's there's um those everyone's focused everyone's made these commitments for 2050 mm. at the moment there's a real lot of pressure to be able to see that there's a lot of movement moving very quickly towards 2030. So uh, I mean like um the U.S. representative um the the previous secretary Kerry he um he highlighted the fact is that the U.S. is moving in that right direction but lack of details really makes it hard to be able to determine if the United States is actually going to be moving as fast as it should in the next uh, eight to nine years to make sure that we've got some substantial process by 2030 because obviously there's concerns that once we sort of pass a certain guardrail with regard to these temperature rises, we didn't, we can't go backwards. We can't just say, oh, look, you know, it's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll nudge over 1.5 or 2 in by 2040, but then we'll push it back by that time, by 2050 and all that sort of stuff. There, there's sort of like these sort of, comp- you know, like basically these compounding changes that happen that once the ice, you know, like for example, the parts of the Arctic disappear, that increases the amount of absorption of, of the heat by the planet, which increases the impacts of uh, climate change. There's also the methane in, in the Siberian uh which means could be released as temperatures rise. So there's a whole bunch of things that basically once we pass those sort of like guardrail temperature levels, it will lead to accelerating changes in climate change. So you're right. During the meeting, China and the United States came out with this agreement to to basically accelerate climate change action going forward, which was great because obviously geopolitically China and the US haven't been in, in that same boat, in that mm. same space for quite a while. But I mean, but again, I mean, the fact is that leaders like making announcements, just like India made yeah. that announcement. But then the fact is that then they need their officials to be able to then provide the necessary details about how you actually reach that 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 place going forward so that if the United States and China take that leadership role, then they have to provide substantive ways about how they actually do it in terms of funding, in terms of technology, in terms of whether it's taxes or whether it's uh, subsidy, removal of subsidies, et cetera, everything like that. That's why, as I said to you uh, at the beginning, is that, you know, what we're seeing now with the COP process is that you have these leader meetings that make a whole series of announcements, but they don't follow through with the negotiations. But, you know, there's a whole series of, of um, coalitions, like the one on methane, the one on forests. So, so there's a lot of things happening and a lot of announcements made with funding and everything like that, but they're not being reflected in the actual commitments that countries are making at the meeting themselves and everything like that. Uh, partly, I guess, the fact is that countries don't want to box themselves in politically. They want the flexibility to be able to say, look, we made this announcement, we're following through on this and all that sort of stuff, you know? But it is very hard, and, and it's it's part of the process of, of, of the transparency of, of these commitments and the regular reporting of them because – if you make them at a global meeting and they're encapsulated, then you're, you're a lot harder to get out of them than if, for example, you just put a press release out. And we, we mm. know how governments operate, you know. Governments love making press releases because they yeah. amend updates and all that sort of stuff as we go forward. Yeah. Just on that COP26, uh, you were talking about the different things that were agreed and there was some, there was some talk of, what was it, phasing down investment in coal was that right and fossil yeah. fuel subsidies and um it, they wanted to originally it was going to be phasing out coal mining or coal-fired power stations and then it was could and uh and fossil fuel subsidies and then it, it got changed to phase down and i think that's what made alec sharma the uh the uk representative there cry didn't he or he was yeah. He was very upset about that, or he apologised. I don't know if he cried, but he certainly apologised. Yeah, it, it's a, it's. I mean, like it. I mean, the um, the first part of the week of COP is is mainly uh, all the committees uh, and and groups working to be able to come up with drafts of the text. Mm. The the second week of the COP is the political week, so those those texts all go up, and so and so at the political level they start to get discussed, and and uh, unfortunately. Um, those meetings start to get very long and and start to become quite tense because what happens is that the text then gets reworded, gets sent back to the officials to re- renegotiate and then gets sent back up to the political level again. And if it can't be resolved at the official level, 
then ministers there present start to actually have hearings and then come up with an agreed text and everything like that. So, I mean, unfortunately for the for um, the, the minister that was leading it, uh, Mr. Sharma, Minister Sharma at the time, yeah, I mean, like he was probably he probably hadn't slept much, and it's easy to get very upset and very emotional mm. because you know we, we you often do quite a few all nighters. Um, in those last few days. And uh, the cops, uh, I learnt my lesson in my first cop because I had my flights booked on the Saturday. But uh, I learnt by the end, the fact is that you don't have your flights booked until Sunday because you know you're going to be meeting all Friday night and then go into Saturday and sometimes you're meeting all Saturday night as well to get a, to get a, a resolution with regard to the outcomes of the cop, you know. So, yeah, but, but yeah, we, you're right with regard to is the fact is that, you know, these changes in language. Now, a lot of people who have shown the positive said, look, just by the inclusion of the phase down in fossil fuels is a real major achievement mm. because we've ever, this never actually ever been mentioned before in, in, a, in an outcome document related to the COP. Right. And so that was a major achievement in terms of its own self. I mean, you know, and as you know yourself, the, the, the issue of subsidies on fossil fuels are, are substantial and, and being able to discuss that as well is, is vitally important because at the moment, I mean, even though, for example, you know, like a lot of, a lot of criticism is made on, on renewables because they say, oh, look, they need subsidies to survive. But, you know, if you look at, for example, a lot of fossil fuels, if you're looking at the, the, you know, the, the trains or the ports or you know, the other sorts of facilities that governments provide, um, they're also quite heavily subsidised as well, or even at the retail level. I remember one time going to Kiribati and, and the cost of a litre of petrol in Kiribati was lower than it was in Brisbane. And, and I mean, that was because the government made a decision to subsidise the, the cost of fuel because people were using it for their outboard motors, fishermen, everything like that. And they thought it was an important way. But as you know, as economists, the fact is that there are other ways to be able to subsidise people in a much more efficient direct matter rather than, for example, sometimes just uh, subsidising a particular commodity. But, yeah, it, it was it was really important. But at the same time, I mean, the fact is that there's, there's so much different work to do and everything like that. And so a lot of people have highlighted the fact is that, you know, it didn't do any breakthrough issues in terms of commitments to support the 1.5, but it just kept it on the table so that the, the negotiations will go to Egypt next year to again look at this and, and make sure that countries are increasing their ambition and their commitments under the under the uh, Paris Agreement to meet that goal of of one point well two or one point five as as the preference and focuses on the one point five. Mm, okay, Scott, do you have any thoughts on whether we need some sort of global carbon price, uh, some so carbon tax in the major in well to start with in the major economies and then that would be enforced or it would it would those economies would try to push other countries to adopt these measures through ca- the carbon border adjustment mechanism something like that do you have any thoughts on that i mean uh, i reflect on my experience uh working um a while ago now working in, in queensland and 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 more generally with across australian jurisdictions working on a on a on a uh, on an emissions trading mechanism and and being able to sort of like provide the necessary sort of like you know target, and then and then looking at sort of like the ways in which, for example, we provide a sort of a mechanism to indicate to businesses and and households about how they can act differently as a consequence. And so you know, at that time, I mean, you know, I saw it as a, I, it made sense to me. The fact is that if, for example, you have a target then you follow through with regard to providing a range of, of incentives to change people's habits in the right way so that they install, for example, solar panels, um, they they utilise public transport as opposed to private transportation. At the same time, you have the necessary sanctions so that people stop doing bad things in terms of, you know, like, you know, pollu- you know businesses stop using polluting too much with regard to their protection, production choices. And and the fact is that people improve the way in which they 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 I guess manage their waste, and and as a consequence, I could see that that made sense with regard to it as you're going forward. So on a global basis, uh, the great challenge then is is you know like the fact is that you know you can't really sort of like pro, you know, progress that in in such a way unless, for example, you start to impose taxes or tariffs and charges on projects with their inherent carbon. In, going forward. So I, I think that, that for a global mechanism, it would be quite hard at this stage. 
um, with regard to it. I can see that, um, you know, what we've been, what, what, you know, what countries have been doing is that they've been promoting the use of technology through exchange, providing funds for adaptation, funds for mitigation as the way go forward and everything like that. But I, I, I see it in terms of imposing a global tax at this stage would be incredibly difficult and, and fraught with a lot of issues in terms of, you know, the the inequity of that of that application mm. going forward and everything like that, do you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, good point. Uh, one thing I might bring up before we, uh, we wrap up is uh, uh, given that I'm generally, I'm pretty sceptical about the ability of countries to do much about climate change given that, well, there's arguably that, prisoner's dilemma aspect to it um well for australia i mean what's the point of us doing anything too major if china and india are still going to be polluting up until 2060 or 2070 uh why should we impose large costs on our economy uh if uh if this thing is still going to happen and we're not going to be able, our contribution is not going to matter much i mean that's just one mm. way that you know economists uh, some economists have looked at it um, of course, I think as a as a globe, it, as a planet, it it seems that we need to do something, and some policy measures would be desirable. It's uh, it's just challenging to see how that. It's just challenging to get that international agreement. I mean, my feeling is that what will end up happening is if we do start to see these really bad impacts, we're, well, we'll we'll either have to do something really, really quickly and at great cost, great inconvenience. That's possibility, or we'll look at these geoengineering solutions. Uh, so there was something in the, uh, I think it was in the Financial Times or in Forbes uh, that I pulled out uh, earlier. Let me uh, let me track that down. Have you have you been have you seen these these types of uh, approaches, Scott? Whether the direct air capture, I mean, incredibly expensive, or this idea that we could uh, pump something into the atmosphere. I think it's sulfur dioxide, isn't yeah. it? And then try to uh, aerosols, sulfur dioxide, yeah, uh, yeah. particles, a whole bunch of things. Yeah, we we um, there was presentations that that I had previously attended with regard to this at the COP, looking at uh, technological solutions. Um, you know, obviously issues related. I mean, like the one that's discussed a lot in Australia is carbon capture and storage. When I was working in the federal government in the Department of Primary Industries a long time ago. Uh, they were saying that carbon capture and storage was was the future, but it's still technologi- technologically still being developed. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, these technological solutions are are, are, are things which um, which have to be looked at because if, for example, we're looking for innovative solutions, um, it, it's part of the suite of measures that you do to be able to respond to a problem. Um, but but overall, with regard to what you're saying in terms of you know, like you know why why should we act when others are not acting going forward and everything like that? Well, let's look at sort of what actions we're, we're talking about. I mean, one, I mean, like um, China is is one of the largest investors in renewable energy globally. So so even though, for example, China continues to invest heavily in coal, it's also heavily investing in renewable energies going forward as well. The other thing too is that if you look at a country like Indonesia and ASEAN more in general, uh, together I think they make the the fifth largest or fourth largest economy globally. They're they're working working quite a lot now on initiatives to be able to look at green growth foundations for the ASEAN economies because they see that there are substantial opportunities for transforming their economies, just basically bypassing um, fossil fuels and, and utilizing there's substantial renewable energy opportunities going forward. And if you look at the practicalities, um, the costs of generating one kilo, a kilowatt per hour, per dollar for using coal-fired is, is like 130 US dollars an hour, I think it is. For gas, it's it's about $70 or $80 per kilowatt hour. But the levelized costs for, for solar and, and wind are, are well under $20 per, per kilowatt hour. So, so the thing is, is that, you know, like the economics are already there to justify the investments in renewable energies going forward. It requires rethinking about our energy system, for example, in Australia or anywhere, because traditionally you'd have the you'd have basically the generator, distribution, retail to the household. Yeah. Now the fact is that when we're looking at things like distributed generation, the fact is that we have communities through their solar panels or other arrangements can have their own localized energy supply system that could be, for example, stored in a battery. And then 
and then that provides sort of like a, a lower, I mean, like a, a local a local power system that can be utilised going forward and everything like that. It, it's it's the fact is that we're just not thinking about the way in which, for example, the energy system can be can be redesigned going forward. Same as transportation. I mean, that that the opportunities in terms of of lower carbon or zero carbon shipping and 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 um and motor vehicles and road transport are all there going forward and everything like that. And we see the opportunities that, that are there to be able to, to go forward in terms of that. It's just the fact is, is that, you know, like that, you know, people look back and say, oh, how can you have, you know, like um, rely only upon wind and solar because, you know, when they when the sun's out and the wind's gone, what do we do? Well, that doesn't take account the fact is that, you know, you can store it in hydro, you can store it with regard to batteries, you can store it with regard to a whole variety of, of different innovative ways to sort of go forward. So in my mindset with regard to it going forward is, is the fact is that, you know, it's, you know, as Australia's like, a, well, any country's, Existing energy infrastructure ages, and Australia's coal infrastructure, coal-powered infrastructure, is extremely old and inefficient and very costly. The fact is, it provides you know those times to ask those questions are there going forward with regard to what do we replace with it at this stage, and the and the economic case for them now is is not a matter of saying oh look you know let's let's sort of like take a whim and and, and invest in something that we don't know that's going to happen. These are tried technologies; their costs are substantially lower than the existing other technologies, and they produce and the producing is a reliable energy energy source for the community going forward. So, I think it's a, a lot of things to think about going forward for it go, in, at this stage you know it's it's not a matter of just thinking about the way used to th- our electricity for example used to be delivered it's a way of thinking about going forward and everything like that and i think that uh, it's a great time and opportunity and, and the price is there to be able to ensure that we we we're not sort of like pushing the envelope in terms of of risky technology it's actually quite reliable and known technology now that we we're using okay are the costs of renewables versus fossil fuel generation, is that controversial? Because I think Alan Moran has some different estimates of what those costs are. And, I mean, he would argue that that reliability concern is a huge concern. Yeah. So, and that it can be expensive providing that reliability. So Absolutely. Um, it's probably, probably we don't have time to go into it today, but I, I, I mean, I hope you're right that we can – generate energy with renewables and then we can cheaply store that in whether it's lithium batteries or whether it's uh, in hydrogen i mean everyone's talking about green hydrogen now yep i mean that is a that's a you know that's a great hope i mean i hope that we can do that uh i mean i've just been wondering are we is there a lot of wishful thinking or are we hoping for technological change to occur that hasn't occurred yet because when I see what the federal government's assuming yeah. in its its roadmap, it seems to be assuming that a lot of the gains come from technology yeah. falling like manna from heaven. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. and that, I mean that, and that's a that's a problem with regard to you know like like countries that that have NDCs that are based on on conditional commitments, saying that somebody has to pay for our changes going forward and everything like that. Sim, in a similar way, and you're right. I mean, like it's it's no good just having sort of like an as like anybody with regard to forecasting and, and looking forward to the future. You can't just sort of basically have this sort of gap saying and X is technology and it will fill it in. Um, we just can't tell you how it's going to fill it in going mm-hmm. forward and everything like that. But that's that's why, for example, if you have if you start setting targets and, and clear clear targets for industry and 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 for individuals to start to meet, they start making those decisions in, in, with regard to their investments in a much better way going forward. Yeah. As it is at the moment, I mean like the 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 lack of the lack of clarity about sort of like what we've what sort of like what what we're working towards makes it really hard for for businesses to make those investments, everything like that. I mean, even the even the Business Council of Australia, which was a long time sort of like you know fairly fairly you know like um, lackluster in its its at you know its welcoming of um, of cl- targets, now welcomes that going forward. I mean, like even the meat Le- meat was it meat livestock council. I heard them; they've got a zero carbon plan already. You know. So, yeah. so I mean, so these are these are things. The fact is that companies are and, and industry bodies are already acting very already in this, but they're operating in that unknown void because you know the Australian government has has taken a bit of time to be able to get to this this zero by twenty fifty, and still hasn't given us a clear goal for twenty thirty. 
right, just on uh, Meat and Livestock Australia and the agricultural sector more broadly, one point that Alan Kohler, who's a business columnist here in Australia, made recently is that uh, a lot of these farmers are doing quite well out of these uh, this mechanism we've set up, these carbon farming initiatives yeah. or whatever they are, or the paying them not to clear land or to manage their vegetation. So they've actually done quite well. Absolutely. And and, and under the, under the um, and at Glasgow, uh, what's known as Article 6, which is the, the market mechanism, um, the, the rules were finally agreed to. And so that will, that will, that will provide um, a bit more certainty about sort of like the development for, for, for the development of carbon markets going forward. And yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the, the fact is that there are financial opportunities that will arise from this. I mean, like, you know, there was a group of, um, of, uh, you know, like a financiers, or was it the financial Alliance for net zero? And they, they, they have, they manage 130 trillion in, in, uh, in investments. Okay. And, and, and there's, there's already actions with regard to these ESG standards and, you know, the equator principles and, and, and the, and, you know, that identify the importance of companies reporting and then also uh, providing a clear guidance about how they're actually working towards zero because th- there's actually money in it because you're actually cutting costs. You're actually, you know, like, you know, you're actually exposing yourself to lower risk as it goes forward, being dependent uh, on fossil fuels and other sort of sources going forward. So there's a lot, there's a lot of actual common sense for companies to actually invest in this to be sustainable. Right. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, before we wrap up, I'll just mention that article again. It wasn't in the Financial Times. It was in The Economist and it was reprinted in uh, the Australian newspaper. We are on the verge of extraordinary change with technologies emerging in 2022. The astonishing rapid development and rollout of coronavirus vaccines has been a reminder of the power of science and technology to change the world. Okay. Yes, and they talk about 22 emerging technologies worth watching in 2022. One of them is solar GN- geoengineering, so which we were just talking about, but they say it's hugely controversial. How would it work? How would rainfall and weather patterns be affected? I mean, it sounds like the sort of thing that could just have really, really awful uh, unintended consequences. And then they go on about direct air capture. So apparently next year, Canada's carbon engineering will start building the world's biggest direct air capture facility in Texas, capable of capturing 1 million tonnes of CO2 per year. Okay. I mean, my understanding is that this is rather expensive, this direct air capture, and so you'd have to be in, in really dire straits to roll it out on a, a wide scale. But, I mean, who knows? Um, one thing I should mention is that 1 million tonnes of CO2, that is uh, what we need to compare that with is the fact that we need to reduce global emissions by over 50,000 million tonnes, I think, don't we, or something like that. It's like 50 gigatons or something. Yeah, the, the carbon budget is uh, is incredibly getting uh, shorter and shorter and everything like that. Yeah. The amount of reductions that we need to do, I, I can get those figures. Oh, that's you. okay. No, 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 no. I, uh, I, think, I think it's about 51 billion, or that's the figure that Bill Gates talks about in his uh, book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. Yeah, I, I was I was there at meetings when they were warning us about getting to the 350 parts per million for CO2, and now we're well over 420 parts per million. So you know, it's it's uh yeah yeah yep okay. Well, we better um, wrap this up, uh, Scott. Any final words? No, thank you very much for the opportunity today. It's um yeah, you know, hopefully um I haven't confused everyone too much about the arcane and um very complicated processes related to the COP, but it's uh it's incredibly interesting and really helpful to be able to hopefully explain it. Um, yes. It certainly is arcane. Um it's even more arcane than I imagined after you, <laughs> you mentioned exactly what's going on there. Uh I mean, I knew it was I knew it was complicated. But I think that was uh, I think that was good, Scott. And I'm I'm hoping that uh, yes, that uh, if you're in the audience, you got something out of that. And uh, if you do have any questions or, or comments, then you know, please send them through to uh, contact at economicsexplored.com. Okay, Scott Hook, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Jim, for being able to put me on. Thank you. Okay, that's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. 
If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.